1: hi this is imran ahmed founder and ceo of the business of fashion welcome to the bof podcast christian louboutin is arguably the world's most famous luxury shoe designer he recently sold a 24 percent stake in his namesake label valuing the company at 2.7 billion dollars but beyond the brand and his iconic red sole who is christian louboutin the man behind christian louboutin the brand in this intimate conversation with Rosanne Ahmed from BOF Voices 2021, Christian reveals himself as a vibrant, multifaceted human being who has taken a childhood obsession and turned it into a lifelong passion. Here's Christian Louboutin on balancing personal identity and public brand.
2: So, $2.7 billion. <laughs> hey, how do you feel about such an accomplishment?
3: Well... First of all, I have to say um, I'm French, so I can speak English, but mm-hmm. I have very little vocabulary, so I have to apologize for that,
2: Kay.
3: and also I'm extremely shy, which makes this exercise very difficult, but
2: mm-hmm.
3: I'm very happy. The reason is, yeah, it looks like an accomplishment, but it is not an accomplishment. I mean, I started the company 30 years ago mm-hmm. with my two best friends. and. I never thought of selling a part of the company. I never thought of anything else and designing pretty shoes and please people with that. Mm. So I never thought, OK, I'm building a company. And I, I was not even um, necessarily interested into the fashion industry. So I never thought, OK, you know, building, this is building a company. Mm. I wanted to have a shop yeah. with nice shoes. That's it.
2: And then it turned into the magical empire that it is today.
3: Yeah, Yeah, but it's thanks to many people. I wouldn't take the credit for that.
2: Yeah. Okay, so prior to your success and Christian Louboutin, the brand that we know now, I'd love to know who you were as a child. And on top of that, for obvious reasons, I'd like to know when and how you found out you are African. Uh,
3: (laughs) So I was born and raised in Paris in a very, what I would say, loving family, so a father and a mother, mm-hmm. and three older sisters, slightly witches, but still, <laughs> still nice.
2: So you're the baby. Uh, you
3: know, I'm allergic, <laughs> exactly, I'm allergic to fish. They put a little bit of fish. I'm throwing out that type of thing, and everybody's applauding. <laughs> and, you know, annoying sisters that I still love, but very annoying sisters. OK. And uh, <laughs> I was bad at school, but I was very lucky because, from. Various reasons I love to draw and I love to draw shoes, Mm. more or less just shoes. So from the age of 10, 11, 12, I started to draw shoes, not thinking it was a job. It was more like a a hobby or Mm. like a type of kick or something, you know, so sketching sort of everywhere. Mm -hmm. And then actually it became something that I liked or thought maybe it would be a job.
2: So this was in Brittany? You was, no, during, no, no, I was
3: in, born and raised in Paris. So this was all in Paris. Right?
2: Oh, all in Paris, right,
3: okay. And so you're talking of African roots. So I have three yes. sisters and two are blondes. And when I was younger, I was actually darker. Mm. And my sisters, so my family is very white. We're all coming from Brittany. My father was blonde. They're both dead now. My father and my mother. My father was blonde. My mother was very fair, very pale complexion. And that's it. And funny enough, when I was a kid, I was not making any reference to my family that I loved, because I felt different because of the color of my skin. Mm. So it didn't make me feel bad at all. It just made me feel different. I don't different, mm. which is nice. Yeah, which is nice. And also, I, I didn't have to refer to, you know, like you look like your uncle because I didn't look like the uncle who was drunk all the time, or you look like your <laughs> the grandfather who was yeah. an asshole. You know that type of thing. I but. never felt any reference to my family was coming all the way to me. Right. So I actually think that it's a very uh, liberating thing to not necessarily belong, to be like, you know, the lineage in a family.
2: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But did you, did you at any point wonder why you felt different? Or did you have any well, moments when you were a kid where, where, you, where, where you were <coughs> shown that you were different, put it that way?
3: Well, first of all, I think that a lot of kids feel that they may be adopted. They don't really belong to their family. (laughs) So my family was a very classical, random, working-class family. So if you already have three children, Mm. you're not adopting a fourth children. Right. That comes, you know, that's not, we were not Josephine Bakers. So So (laughs) that was not going to happen. So I thought I look adopted. But why would my parents, who already have three kids, would adopt me? So I thought, okay, you know, that's a fantasy. Mm. And so I was living on that fantasy, <laughs> not thinking more than that. But I was definitely thinking that I was coming from a different background. Yeah. And, um, well,
2: something you told me something happened to you when you were a child.
3: Yeah. Yeah. No, something. Where... Yeah. And the strange thing is that, for instance, if you are in, a, let's say, if you, your family is white and your environment is pretty white, and uh, which was my environment you never think of racism, because yeah. it's not. I had a family who was absolutely not racist, there was no issue around that, et cetera. so there was no no topics around all that type of situation. Yeah. And so you brought up, it's, it's not an issue. So yes, I was telling you about that. Um, mm-hmm. When I was 12 or 13, I was with a friend of mine, and I went to, if I make it short, I went to a coffee, we had an argument with the director of the coffee, et cetera. It started to feel bad, but when there, something like that, I f- I find it quite theatrical, so I like the idea that everybody's shouting in the restaurant, etc. But <laughs> then the guy looks at me and he says, I'm going to punch you in the face to make your nose even flatter than it is. Yeah. And then suddenly I thought, what does it mean? And mm-hmm. I thought, okay, flat nose, reference to a black face. And then suddenly I got really frozen and I just didn't know Shocking. I was really harmless.
2: I had a very similar experience when I was younger because, like you, I didn't really... I mean, I I didn't really understand the term black, even, until I went to New York City, and I was 17 at the time. Because growing up in the UK, it's only very recently that the term black has been applied to those of colour. Before, it was either you were Sudanese or you were Jamaican or you were Ghanaian or Kenyan. So my first experience shook me, and that's why when you... When you told me this story, I, I resonated because we were so alien to mm-hmm. the possibility of, of racism taking place in our lives. So I personally feel that, although you felt different, because you mentioned to me that you felt different and you also had an affinity with Egypt mm-hmm. before even knowing that you My were, in fact...
3: was Egyptian.
2: Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, so could you... What, what happened there? How did you find out? And then when you did, were you like, oh, okay, this makes sense? Uh, uh, because how did you feel when you found out?
3: Well, basically I always loved Egypt, and yeah. uh, you have thousands of reasons to love Egypt. Mm-hmm. And so I would go back and forth to Egypt since I'm like 18 or 19 years old. Mm-hmm. And 10 years, less than 10 years ago, I had lunch with my older sister who lives in Brittany, so I barely see her. Mm-hmm. And at the end of lunch, she started to say, do you ever go still to Egypt? I said, yeah. I haven't been this year because of work, but I'm not afraid to go. That's mm-hmm. not a problem, etc." And she asked me why I love so much Egypt. I said, you know, you have so many reasons to love Egypt. But she said, yeah. but you could have a very specific reason. <laughs> I said, but like what? She says, like, you could be looking for something. I said, but looking for like what? And she said, like your father. So, that's how she told you? Yeah. <laughs> wow. So I, was, I looked at what she had been drinking, one <laughs> glass of white wine, that's fine. I thought, <laughs> wow.
2: Yeah.
3: And she said, are you serious? And I say, are you serious? She yeah. says, yes. And then she explained me the story of, she said, well, I wanted to tell you for a long time that you're actually the love child of our mom, and you were born by uh, the love of our mom to this man who was called Nassim, who was Egyptian and who was working on the roof for a few years wow. uh, in Paris, yeah. etc. Okay. And so I felt quite um, surprised. Mm-hmm. And, but my first thing was about my mother. I thought, you know, I was born when she was 42. So I thought, at the beginning of her 40s, she had another big love, obviously. Yes. So I thought, good for her. Yeah, her.
2: exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. was beautiful. What a beautiful way to respond to something that most people would just be blown by, and, and I suppose in many ways react to negatively, the fact that you responded with such positivity.
3: Well, I was loved by my parents, too. Yeah. So I thought, you know, either yeah. you're the love child who is hated because it represents a loose of your love, or either you represent the love of this love. Mm-hmm. And this, me, it's a second thing. So I'm fine. I was oh. perfectly happy. But I just wanted to, I was going to a big birthday party outside Paris. Mm -hmm. I was not sleeping in my house, in my apartment in Paris. I was sleeping in a house somewhere else. So I thought, I want to go to this party, but I want to go to bed because I want to sleep and know exactly what's going to happen in my dreams, in my unconscious, and how am I going to wake up? Basically, I go to sleep. I'm like French, and I wake up half french
2: Africa. half arabic
3: <laughs> yeah, yeah yeah and i thought okay something is going to happen and then i mm-hmm. woke up i didn't have a dream nothing i was a bit starving i wanted my coffee with yeah. milk and nothing happened and i realized that it was pretty much ingrained inside me already mm. so there was no problem. there hadn't been any problem about that mm-hmm. and i probably knew it
0: yes and planning for your next trip
1: Because when you finally step into those sneakers, put on that watch, get your real gold glow up, swing that handbag over your shoulder, or step out in that streetwear, you'll realize that feeling is unlike any other. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms.
0: Have you ever owned something that inspired you to up your game? I can picture myself with a car full of groceries, cruising down the highway, soaking up the sun with the available dynamic sky panorama glass roof. Uh, Pure bliss. Live up to the all new Lexus GX. Luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Um,
2: Well, DNA does. Well, I, I believe that memory does exist in DNA, which explains, you know, generational traumas or generational Joy, you know, I I think your story is is testament to to that reality, that memory does exist in in our DNA. Because you were, in fact, going to Egypt, falling in love with Egypt, and, you know, and Mm -hmm. and it turns out you were from there.
3: But also, you know, I remember having signs of, like, the first time I would go to an Arabic wedding... All right. They made me dance, and I was dancing. I knew exactly how to place my ass and shake it. (laughs) And I thought, wow, you know, something is there that I've never experienced, but I connected. (laughs) You knew what to do. do Exactly. (laughs) You knew
2: how to shimmy. Exactly. (laughs)
3: So (laughs) I thought, well, something is already there. So I definitely knew that it was there. I just didn't know that it was big time there. Mm -hmm.
2: Mm -hmm. Okay. So even in this age of uh, booming creative shifts and entrepreneurship and self-discovery, and new expression, and uh, a real kind of poise in one's identity. And also, as, as Imran mentioned earlier, and a lot of us have been talking about, the great resignation and kind of coming out of a reality that no longer satisfies our souls. There's still a difficulty in merging passion or turning passion into profit. It's not easy, despite this new surge and new realization in in moving towards that. So my question to you is, at this stage of your career, and we all know that on the professional side, you are a whopping success. How do you balance that professional success with, say, your personal purpose or your passion, your joy? Because from what I see, I, I see that you love what you do. You still love what you do. So how, how do you sustain that?
3: Well, it's not very difficult for me because I think that passion comes first. Mm. And uh, if passion comes first, you will never waste your time because you will always be happy of what you've been doing, what you are doing. And if success is happening, it's a cherry on the cake, it's a plus but it's not the thing. The thing is your drive is your passion for what you do, your love of your creativity. Mm. And if this comes first, that's never a problem. i give you an example. When I started Beauty, the product, the nail polish, Mm. was I designed it as an object because beauty literally means beautiful. So I thought Mm. if it's just to put it in a package with my name, there is no beauty in there. Of course. Beauty needs to be beautiful. On that, I'm very square. So I designed that thing, which ended up being expensive. And the company say it's too expensive. It's like twice the price of the most expensive nail polish. Mm. I say, you know what, but I still like it. And I'm not, um, neither tenacious or stubborn, but I say, that needs to be beautiful. Mm. If it works, great. If it doesn't work, I will have not wasted any time, because I will be happy of what I did. Mm-hmm. But if I do something that I don't like, even if it's successful, what do you gain from that? Yeah. And I always favor uh, versus, what you say, like success or whatever, yes. financial things. I always, um, I think that also it's pretty transparent. When you love what you do, you actually translate it, Yes. and people see through that. Mm-hmm. If you do something, so basically the opposite, you do something you don't like and it's not successful, you totally wasted your time. Mm -hmm. So don't waste your time in doing things you don't like, because out of there there won't be any pleasure.
2: Exactly, where you lose both ways. Exactly, (laughs) Exactly, yeah. So I saw a documentary about you once, where you said you didn't think you were a good leader. How is that possible? Explain (laughs) to us how you thought that you didn't think Uh, you were a good leader. Because I am a
3: bad leader in the sense, I'm not a leader. But I have maybe this classical thing, a leader stands up and speaks in front of a lot of people, etc., which I cannot do, Mm. which I never did, which I never do in my team, with my team. But um, I don't like to give lessons. I don't like people to give me lessons, so I don't like to give lessons. So all this is not making me a good leader. But I'm not a good leader because also I have a great team. And when you have a great team, You don't need to be a good leader. Mm -hmm. When you're actually working with people, and you respect them, and you have everyone doing their thing their best because they like what they do, Mm -hmm. then you end up having a great team. So you don't need to be a good leader. Mm
2: -hmm. Well, I think definitions of leadership is is so different now. And Mm -hmm. we were hearing earlier, and I, I told you earlier, that there's a whole kind of shift of thinking now when it comes to leadership, consideration. and well-being and intuition and purpose and all these things. And I feel that there's a new frontier when it comes to leadership coming into play. And I feel that you have kind of always been that way. You've always been driven by passion, by, mm-hmm. by feeling, by intuition, by art, by beauty. So... I think you are a good leader, <laughs> personally. Um, so I have, a, I have a loaded, pretty loaded question coming up now. And this goes back to, to the idea of mixture, cultural mixture, identity mixture. You once said that everything is the fruit of cultural mixture. This is one of you. Mm-hmm. So I like to believe that those of us who are cultural mixtures. And you and I have a similar kind of makeup and DNA. We are, we've been born and raised in Europe. We're both African, and we, we're both glazed with Arabia. Me being from Sudan, yourself from mm-hmm. Egypt, so we're neighbors in that sense. And both our nations were Arabized a very long time ago. So, so we kind of essentially represent three different continents. So, I believe that those of us who are cultural mixtures, who grew up without the choice, the no choice, we had no choice of having to live and learn within multiple cultures, possess a unique empathy. I feel that we have this empathy when it comes to building bridges and generating a stronger sense of unity in humanity. While others talk about globalization, I believe that some of us are globalization and therefore have a wider scope of appreciation in human understanding. So my question is, do you think that your own multi-ID, and we can just create a name for us, the multis of the world, do you think that your own European, Arabian, and African fusings has had a similar impact in your own worldview? In other words, are those of us who are biologically and culturally multi more capable of unifying humanity?
3: Well, I still think that it depends on characters at the very beginning, but definitely, I think that to belong to different cultures, to different places, make you see different, make you understand from the very beginning that one has a lot of different points of view. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but also, I remember this friend who said to me, I'm half black, half white. And he said, but I'm not half black, half white. I'm 100% black, 100% white. Amen. It's 200%. <laughs> so you don't, when you have different, in a way, different ethnicity, different culture, you're not a third, a third, a third. You are three times more. Mm-hmm. So you don't, you don't divide. You're not divided. You're multiplicated. Yes. So it's definitely, a, I would say, it's a very, very, very good thing.
2: You told me earlier, when I told you about my own upbringing, how I, how I felt I was growing up with a crisis of identity, and then later in my life I realised that this crisis of multi-identity was, was actually an opportunity, which mm-hmm. is why I ended up you know, putting a series of stories around what it means to be multi-identity. You said, you said to me, it isn't really choice, it's chance. Mm-hmm. And I really appreciated that. Mm-hmm. You said that it's more, it's the chance because you've been so exposed. And, and I suppose this is why my, my work has also become so intersectional and the same with you. The whimsicality and the dreaming and the traveling and whether, whether we're migrating, whether we're refugees or whether we're traveling, we are, we are individuals that have seen more. And on that note, <laughs> thank you so much, Christian. Thank you. For today's discussion, thank you all.